0: to Season 6 of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery. This is where the truth is told in craft beer, quite possibly the only place. My job is to interview the breweries, distributors, and retailers on the front lines of craft beer all over the world. Not the ones that pretend they're successful while bleeding cash flow and profitability every month, but the honest ones that share the truth of their pain, their struggles, and their loss. With your help, we'll make this industry better by admitting when it's not, by pointing out the impossibility of the business model and the headwinds of the marketplace in every country all over the world. This season will be the most diverse one yet. We'll go back in time, across oceans, and deeper into what we can do to prevent beer business disaster. So thank you for joining me on my quest to uncover how not to start a damn
1: And there are weeks where we did 48,000... 000... $84,000, $92,000 in a week, which sounds incredibly impressive, and under any circumstance that is incredibly impressive, unfortunately, it was an order of magnitude below what we needed to be doing.
0: I think most of you would think that if I gave you 2,300 shareholders that would invest $2.2 million in your brewery, you'd be able to make it work. If I said you could secure another four hundred dollars from a state loan and six hundred dollars from the SBA, that your $3.2 million would give your brewery a special runway all the way to space travel. And if I said you could go back in time to when there were only a few hundred U.S microbreweries around, you'd think I was fucking crazy. Remember that with inflation, that's like having $10 million cash, and you still get to be the third or fourth brewery in your state. Well, back in the 90s, Guy Hagner raised that money, and Guy Hagner built that brewery. He opened with a world-class facility, a licensing deal for one of the best pilsners in the entire world, and he closed seven months later. He's never spoken publicly about the story of Franconia Brewery until now, but this is a special interview that draws similarities to the current market and, if you're paying attention, the business model of craft beer overall. And with that, I'll get out of the way and let Guy share his story. Well, Guy, I want to thank you for taking the time to sit with us today. We're we're going to challenge you in a unique way that we don't normally do on this show to remember stuff that happened decades ago <laughs> as opposed to months and sometimes even things that haven't happened. But um, the big stuff to talk about, uh, a lot going on, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time. So thank you.
1: Well, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's uh, an interesting story and Uh, I went through a lot of boxes of material and sent you some background information and going through it all really brought back a lot of memories and stirred up some long forgotten emotions. And uh, yes, I think it's a pretty interesting story of what we what we did and what we tried to do.
0: Yeah, I I particularly was fascinated. When you first reached out, I got the idea and I thought it was interesting. And it was it was uh, older stories. I was Uniquely fascinated just to kind of see the the correlations as well as the things that don't line up from 1997 to today. But as I started reading through the notes and all the things you sent, I just was like, personally, and and we'll see this throughout the interview, but I was like, this is kind of a badass business model. And uh, I was rooting for success, even though I knew that it (laughs) it, it didn't work out as I was reading through it. But we're going to try to get through all of it. It's going to be a challenge. I definitely want to hear, you know, a lot of what happened. And I'm sure that our audience is going to be very curious to know some of the numbers, obviously, uh, again, some of those unique contracts, I think you had, but before we get too deeply into it, you could, you went to Siebel before most people that listen to this podcast were even born. So <laughs> let's talk a little bit about that. Like, what was it like deciding to be a beer maker in the early eighties? Cause that had to be a unique job that was not everybody doing.
1: Well, for some reason, uh, I've always liked beer. Even when I was a kid, my grandfather used to give me sips out of his, out of his beer. He always said he'd save me the foam in the can. <laughs> and, um, uh, Uh, In 78, when I went off to college, I actually started homebrewing in my college dorm. And back then, of course, there was very little good information available, but I somehow found a place to buy some malt extract and some yeast and a carboy and whatnot and uh, gave it a try. And then in 1980, I spent six months in Europe. My college had an overseas semester and I went over earlier and did six weeks of intensive German in Salzburg, did a lot of travel around Europe and then the college program was in Fürth, which is right outside of Nuremberg in the Franconia region of Germany. And my father had given me Michael Jackson's original World Guide to Beer, and that really became my travel guide throughout Germany and Europe. And of course, I saw all of the small towns in at least in this part of Germany and Franconia all had a small brewery. The beer was fantastic. And, you know, the local people would go and drink the local beer. I really got inspired thinking, you know, why don't we have this in the United States? And came back thinking, this is what I wanted to do. I wanted to open a small local brewery someday. I've made a couple attempts, including this Franconia venture, and can't say I conquered the world, but it's still a lifelong, been a lifelong passion of mine to um, produce fantastic european style beer
0: clearly this happened you know in the mid 90s but your story continues to this day you're still making beer which you know i'm definitely not the poster child but as a good example i got all the way the hell out of it as fast i have not touched a mash paddle (laughs) since the day i got out so I'm interested in hearing some of that story too of of how you kind of bounced back and continued and still find passion and joy in, in making beer. So we'll try to get that to the last segment, but I definitely want to cover that too. But so let's talk a little bit about that. Like you, you got your start in the industry again. I'm super interested just to hear. In 1985, you'll get a degree in making beer. There couldn't have been that many jobs available. I mean, I guess there probably weren't that many no. placebo graduates either. So maybe the the pool was smaller. But
1: no, there there certainly weren't. Um, after I graduated in '82. I actually went back to Europe again for a couple months of more travel and beer research. I got a job at Pabst Brewery in Newark, New Jersey in 83 to 85 until that closed. And I just went, knocked on their door and said, hey, I want to work in a brewery. And I had an economics degree with a kind of a minor in German language. And they said, well, you don't have any technical experience or or background, but we have this clerical position if you want it. So I was the lowest paid person in the entire Pabst organization. I think they hired me at about $12,000 a year salary, which even back then was was nothing. But I got to, to the department I was in was called production services. And we interacted with the brewing department, uh, packaging department, the warehouse and shipping. So I got to kind of see the whole operation of the plant. And when that shut down in 85 is when I sent myself to To Siebel. And the class was probably 30 or 35 people. And there was only, I want to say, only a half a dozen or so Americans. There was probably a half a dozen Canadians. And then a number of Central and South American brewers, a couple of fellows from Korea. You know, it was a real international class of students there. And they were kind enough to elect me class president. And they told me later it was because. They figured I needed it most of my resume of anyone there, so (laughs) that was kind of
0: fun. So then you went on and and worked at a few different breweries before you founded Franconia, right? Because you looked like I had some experience at some bigger houses, too.
1: Yeah, there was um, a small brewery in Little Rock, Arkansas that hired me initially, and that only lasted a few months. Uh, They weren't really producing much beer. And, you know, I think they were kind of hoping I could come in and turn the place around. And of course, fresh out of brewing school, I still didn't really know what I was doing. And the people who were there also didn't, uh, you know, who had been there previously didn't really seem to know much about running a brewery. And uh, I got out of there pretty quickly and went down to New Orleans, where I was hired at Dixie Brewery as the assistant brewmaster. And the brewmaster passed away only a few months after I was hired. And the ownership gave me the Opportunity to run the place, which I did for about four years. That was a pretty big regional brewery, although they they were in less than than healthy financial condition, and sales were not great. And the plant in New Orleans, if you don't do maintenance, on, um, you know, it was kind of an old, rundown museum of a brewery. The crew that I hired there and myself, we had a fantastic time. We, you know, that's how you really learn. We got tossed in the deep end of the pool and had to figure out how to. Make this place operate and and do well. After Dixie, I was hired at Stegmire the Lion Brewery in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, which is a pretty big regional brewery still going strong. We made about three hundred thousand barrels of product. Only about a third of that was beer, though. We did a lot of Malta soft drinks and other types of beverages, including some early versions of you know the RTD products. Really? Yep. Yeah. So this brings us up to about 94 when i saw i read a thing in one of the brewing magazines about company that was founded by a fellow who owned the willamette winery and had also founded norwester brewery and was selling stock to open mile high brewery in denver and i'm still throughout my career thinking someday i'm going to do my own brewery and this stock offering that they did they sold out almost immediately. I think they raised about two and a half million dollars in under a week of stock sales. It was oversubscribed, so they had to send back a few hundred thousand dollars <laughs> to people who who mailed in too late. You know, and it just looked like people throw money at you if you have a chance to uh, invest in a brewery. And of course, this was the early 90s when the industry really was booming. You know, I, I found some old information about sales trends and the industry was growing 40, 50 percent a year. The big players, Eats Wicked and Boston and Red Hook and so forth, they all were just blowing the doors off of their business. And there wasn't a sense back then that the market was overcrowded with breweries. If anything, it seemed underserved based on the growth rate. So this seemed like a perfect opportunity for me to jump in with both feet and do something big and splashy.
0: Yeah, which which you did. And I, I think that the design is amazing and that the whole idea is cool. My question would be, and now obviously we're looking back from the vantage point of 2023, but today the same guy with the same inspiration is typically starting a seven barrel brew house and plan on making probably 800 barrels a year, if he even plans on his top line revenue. But yeah. Going back, since that's sort of the standard today, did you even consider doing something small and building? Because the size of the house you were looking at was pretty large and the whole thing was a, a big overall plan. But did you think at all about going in the smaller and, and then, you know, growing up or just like, no, let's make it right the first time and, and go big?
1: Well, I, I certainly you know, certainly had a lot of lot of different ideas and, and considered a lot of different possibilities, including starting small. But it really seemed like, you know, if you jumped in, even on a small scale, you were kind of grabbing the tiger by the tail. And, you know, with the growth rates that everybody who was in the business was seeing, it seemed at the time logical to plan for hitting the ground hard and, and growing quickly. Plus, the way that I tried to finance this through the stock offering, it wouldn't have made sense to go to all the trouble and the expense of, doing a stock offering only to raise a few hundred thousand dollars to build something small in hindsight maybe that's a mistake because that's one of the lessons from the mile high offering that i didn't learn and we'll get into that a little later when we get into the mechanics of what happened with the offering so yeah it, it just seemed like the logical thing to do you know if, if you open a five or ten barrel brewery brew pubs really weren't Really weren't a thing back then. I mean, there were a few around the country, but, you know, you're either a little funky brew pub or you were a brewery packaging beer and and distributing and intending to grow and conquer the world. So that's the avenue I went down.
0: Well, I remember even when I was looking at doing it in the late 2000s, we all knew that you didn't make money under 1,000 barrels. Um, and and now the industry's packed with 70 to 80% of the breweries make less than 1,000 barrels and maybe 80 to 90% of them don't make any money. So I'm not sure it's changed dramatically, but we'll get to that in a little bit. So in my opinion, there's a lot about your business that you had decided to do that I thought was cool, unique, and interesting. I think the most interesting and the one that – I was surprised didn't have more of an impact was this relationship that you had with Bomberger, the Heron Pills. And I'd really like to hear about how that came about because obviously I don't imagine... The brewmaster at Dixie just picks up the phone and calls a guy overseas and says, hey, bro, I got this idea. And he goes, yeah, for sure. So I'm really yeah. curious how you got this contract and how this started.
1: In my travels over to Europe over the years, of course, I usually spend most of my time in in Bavaria and Franconia. In Bamberg, the Kiesman Brewery's Bamberger Hair and Pills was always one of my favorites. This has this beautiful aromatic hot nose. That uh, you don't necessarily find in a lot of the German Pilsners. It's just a beautiful, beautiful beer. And I used to go over with uh, some friends from New Orleans when I lived down there, and a group of us kind of met some of the regulars there and just you know became friends with with a few of the customers and would meet up with them every time we'd go over there. And they knew the ownership at Keysman, and I said, look. I've got this crazy idea I'd, I'd like to start a brewery and do you think there's any chance that they would license production of their parent pills to me and the fellow uh, Oswald and his wife Gudrun who were the primary people that we knew said well we'll we'll ask and see what they say and sure enough they they expressed interest in it and went over met with them and their lawyer/business business advisor you know they seemed a bit skeptical about what (laughs) this whole thing was about. And I explained the plans to build the brewery to raise the money through the stock sales. Uh, The fact that I expected to have several thousand shareholders who, you know, would be very enthusiastic about the thing. And they said, yeah. So we drew up a contract. They did require an initial upfront good faith payment of 50,000 Deutschmarks. And, you know, had the contract translated legally from German to English and signed both. Both copies, and we were in business.
0: Yeah, so I think I could almost make an entire show just out of this, but let's let me try to talk about a couple (laughs) of the high points here. One, the brewmaster, quote unquote, let's use that term loosely, but the guy guy starting a brewery today, typically of the 10,000 breweries in the United States, you might have a handful of people who would consider doing it this way. What you see is they instead decide to make a fairly shitty version of the favorite beer that inspired them to make their brewery. So why didn't you just try to make a shittier version of and Pills? I guess is the question I'm getting to in a long way.
1: Well, every, I wanted everything that we did in this project because you know my overriding concern was being able to sell the stock, and I wanted everything that we did to be as legitimate and first class as possible, and. I thought that having a positive, real connection to, in my opinion, one of the best breweries in Franconia uh, was only going to help our case in terms of selling stock, in terms of legitimacy in the marketplace. You know, like I said, everything that we did, I wanted it to be cool and legitimate. And uh, we even to help sell stock, imported, I think, 20 Stigfoss, you know, the, the gravity poured kegs of Heron Pills from Bamberg and poured them at various events where we were presenting our stock to potential investors.
0: Yeah, I saw that in a lot of your circulars that you sent out. But and then... There's the other question from the other side, and obviously you're speculating from where you are because you don't know their decision. But why didn't they just say, screw it, we'll just we'll import it. We'll just send it through Shelton Brothers and we'll send it over there and, and they can sell it for us instead of having somebody brewed in the United States. What was what was the advantage, you think, in their mind?
1: Well, actually, they, they did eventually do a little bit of that. It, it was Shelton, I believe, did import some of the beer on occasion, not as a regular thing. Obviously, this was, you know, well after the Franconia thing. You know, the case that we made to them was that the market in the U.S. is just exploding for specialty beers. And in particular, at the time, one of our uh, talking points was that if you look at the import beer segment, which at the time dwarfed craft beer, the majority of it was lager beer. Heineken, Beck's, which at the time was still being imported, still, uh, still is
0: majority of lager beer. <laughs> this is a different yep. all, spread out differently but
1: so so it seemed to us that that was the natural market we were going after and that we convinced the ownership of Keysman, that, you know, here's an opportunity for them to jump into a really hot, booming market with their product, and they won't have to do anything other than cash the these big royalty checks we were going to be sending them. So
0: <laughs> easy money, right? You know, yeah.
1: Didn't quite work out. Didn't work out, unfortunately.
0: Well, so a couple of questions. One, because you're clearly, you have tons of brain experience, so I'm sure that even now you can look back and think of things that you were going to do then and be like, wow, I, I really should have done it this way or some. You can make, but I'm uniquely curious if, if you were going to recreate a beer that you know to be one of the best Pilsners in the world, if not the best in your opinion, how is that going to look? Because uh, you know, the water chemistry, the yeast, the hops, all that I assume you want to keep as on this. As authentic as possible. Was that going to be a challenge logistically to do that?
1: Well, I had a uh, consulting German brewmaster who we actually sent over to Bamberg for a couple of weeks to, uh, you know, learn all the ins and outs of their process. We also imported malt from the malt house that they use, which is uh, the Bamberger Malt House or Bamberger eye uh, which had actually never, I believe, had never exported to the United States before. And at the time, there there were no super sacks and they only had 50 kilo bags. So they would stack a, 20-foot container, not even on pallets, just floor to ceiling with these 50-kilo bags, and then we'd have to unload it by hand, which was always fun. And the same thing with the hops. Uh, they put us in touch with uh, – Kiesman put us in touch with their hop merchant, and you know we ordered directly from from the German hop merchant. So we did everything in our power to recreate the, the product.
0: I think somewhere around that same timeline, wasn't it that Pierce Ellis had to, like, sneak his yeast in from Belgium and, because it was illegal, I guess, to import it? <laughs> Was the yeast getting here a challenge for you, or is it that it's easier than it sounds? Uh,
1: to be honest, I don't
0: recall. And that may yeah, not be true. I... That's the poetic story that they tell us on the internet. But yeah, that, that as far as uh, pure cells, anyway. Yeah,
1: I mean, I've 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 heard stories of people just sticking a test tube in their pocket and hoping they don't get frisked at security on the way in and so forth. But I honestly don't remember how we handled getting the yeast over. But somehow we did.
0: Okay. And then the second question I had about the hair and pills, and then before we take a quick break, is from looking at the numbers and sort of the plan that I saw anyways, and I just wanted you to, to speak to that, it, it looked like that was really going to be sort of the beer that you led with, at least for a few months, that you you had plans in there of other products that you were going to create, but was that sort of like, that was the flag you stuck in the sand, and then you were going to dev- go from that, or were they going to release everything all at once?
1: Well, we started off with four beers. We had a, what we call Pocono Gold, which is a, simply a Hellas. We had Brown Beer, which is a pretty minor style, uh, mostly found in Franconia. And then we had a, a Dunkel, a dark lager, uh, and then obviously the, the Heron Pills. So we never actually, most of our sales were mixed case. So you'd have a six pack of each of the four beers in the case. Yeah, but but primarily our product that we went out and bragged about the most certainly was the, the Heron Pills.
0: Okay, yeah, it looked like it. and so. Just to clarify what I meant by thinking that was a great idea, especially today, uh, if, if you could have one of the best pills in the world in your portfolio and you walk up to distributor XYZ in the south part of the state, I don't see how they say no. I, I think that that – so in my opinion, that's one of the reasons I think it was a great idea is that it gave you something literally no other brewery in the United States could do. So. They can make a good Pilsner, but they sure shit can't make a good Franconian Pilsner or you from over there. So I don't know. Yeah. I, thought, I thought it was genius. So
1: as I said, it, it came from the desire to be as legitimate and uh, have a real connection to the Franconia region rather than just using the name Franconia.
0: Well, so let's take a quick break and when we come back, I want to get into, you mentioned authenticity in some of your advertisements. And so uh, I really want to get into not only what that meant to you, but what that meant to the beer drinking population in the mid-90s because I think that's different today. So let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. If he were interested in anything as his old dad was interested in, my son would say it's something like, y'all need to be fucking with PR. Your booze business is more than just an online profile. Fine, keep doing your limited can release and your meet the beer tender posts. But it's time to think bigger than just cheesy marketing. Better, more professional. Brittany Hanning has years of experience turning big ideas into targeted communication in the beverage alcohol business. And her PR firm, Made to Measure Communications, can tighten your image with expert services ranging from AI generation to all the way to media relations. See, people in this industry love to talk about the importance of branding and media outreach, but don't kid yourself for a second. You need an expert to navigate that stuff. So go to the website at m2mcomms, m2mcomms, look them up in San Francisco, or just ask me for Brittany's number. But seriously, stop screwing around and get your image right today. All right, welcome back. We're going to dig back into the past again. So one of the things that you said a few times, and I don't know if this is one of your slogans or not, but I, I saw it written a few times, was that you're going to be the first 100% authentic German-style microbrewery in the United States, which kind of obvious to me now what that means. But at, at that point, were you making a statement about every other brewery in the United States was not authentic and in, if they weren't in what way? And also, how did you think that was going to resonate with the people that you were trying to get to be investors and or future customers?
1: Well, at the time, there were not many breweries making lagers. Pretty much the, the first 10 or 15 years of the craft beer movement, everybody was making ales of one type or another. And this kind of tied into what I mentioned before that we were saying, look, we're not necessarily competing against other craft breweries. We're looking for the, you know, the import drinker, the, the person drinking Becks and Heineken. And I don't even know if Corona was much of a thing back then, but, you know, we're, we're making Beers that, and and I'll admit a personal bias. I think a lager beer is better than than ales, just as you know a general statement. So it's kind of true to what I wanted to do. You know, back then IPAs weren't a thing. But if if you think about a lot of brewers' reactions to having to brew an IPA today, that's kind of how I felt about. Well, I don't want to brew a Sierra Nevada Pale Ale because a they're doing it already extremely well, and b that's not the Type of beer I want to brew, and I think we were able to turn that into uh, what I thought was a compelling story. That uh, you know, here we are doing something that that you don't have to get on a plane and fly to Germany to to drink this fantastic beer that I found when I was a student and traveling around uh, with my buddy drinking beer in in these small German breweries. So I, I didn't necessarily give it a lot of thought kind of in the direction you were you were asking as to how I thought that would be received. To me, it was really the only natural way that I wanted to do this.
0: I think most people that come on my show, uh, for whatever reason, we all have that same, like, well, that's just what we're going to do. Like, I don't want to do it that way or the other <laughs> way. You know, I'm not going to make IPAs, uh, which, again, I don't think that's right or wrong. It's just, it's interesting. So the authenticity question was one of the ones I asked you, because as I was researching some of the other, you know, breweries back then, like, You know, Pete's Wicked's one of the largest ones in the country. Boston was one of the largest ones in the country. They didn't make their own fucking beer; they were uh, contract brewed somewhere. Red Hook had partnered with AB, and I know in their story, their revenues took a hit the year they did that because just that authenticity thing kind of bit them in the butt that they signed the devil, right? And now they're 100% owned by AB. So I just thought it was an interesting, maybe early in the craft beer. Thing, that that was a, a bigger deal than it is today. It, it doesn't seem like it's a big deal today. So.
1: Yeah, that, I definitely did not want to do a, a contract brew. Uh, of course, that was suggested to me many times by many people. And again, back then it, it kind of had a stigma, not that it impeded Sam Adams and, and Pete's wicked growth, but it just didn't seem right to me. You know, I, I wasn't doing this to have a beer marketing company. I was doing this to run a, a great brewery.
0: Yeah. Well, in your defense, Pete Twigga didn't make it 10 more years either, so they all went out of business. Well, their their growth curve was pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, especially that
0: early (laughs) 90s. Yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. So um, let's talk a little bit about the structure, and then I'd like to talk about how you did the stock offering, because I think there definitely would be people, considering opening a brewery, who have read some other stories about other people doing it, but that stock offering thing is definitely a learning curve. Quick question, you created a couple of companies, and... Mm -hmm. Can you speak to, to why? Was one like an operating company and one a holdings company, or what was the logic between the right. different organizations?
1: Well, again, I, I modeled a lot of this on what Mile High did, or at least that group did. And they had Norwester, they had the Mile High, and then they had about a half a dozen other stock offerings they came out with, some of which they sold and some didn't. There was Aviator Rails, there was, oh, I can't remember now, but there's like a half a dozen other entities under their umbrella to open you know to raise money to open various breweries around the country and you know i wanted to emulate that model um i already had in mind that new orleans was going to be the second one of these that we did after franconi became a big success and also i had to raise some seed money for this project you know the the infamous friends and family money to get started and it made the most sense to create the holding company have the seed investors invest in that. And then the holding company would own uh, majority interests in each of these breweries that we were gonna create. In hindsight, that was a huge mistake. I consider that there were two deal killer mistakes that I made and that was certainly one of them because in the stock offering, which you might've seen, I had to represent, well, I'm not a full-time employee of Franconia because I have all these other interests and people would read that and say, well, why am I going to put my money into this if the head person is a part-timer? Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't the reality of it. The reality of it was, and the way I wanted to spin it was, well, look, if Franconia is a huge success and you're making money and you happily own a brewery, if we do brewery number two, wouldn't you want to invest in that also? You know, And there isn't going to be subsequent breweries unless we make Franconia, the first one, a big success. But... The way you have to write the risk factors in the stock offering, it absolutely killed uh, my ability to, to give any kind of a positive spin on I'm just a part-time employee. That, that to me, was a crucial mistake. That in hindsight I would not have made. I would just would have had the seed money go right into Franconia, and then sell stock in Franconia, and I'm 100% of my time involved in Franconia.
0: BHC was the the other company that you had.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was called Brewery, Brewery Holdings Company. And again, I raised friends and family money. That was about a quarter million dollars, and that money was then invested into Franconia to pay for you know all the activities of of underwriting the stock selling activities and so forth.
0: Okay. wait. So you had to have a little bit of fun on the design part. I got to see the layout that you were planning and the, you know, the <laughs> system that you're putting in there. It was pretty badass. But how did you decide what to put in there? You'd worked at different breweries and you had some ideas and obviously you'd hired someone to help. But yeah, I guess that process, I didn't really do it that way. It was a much smaller scale. So I'm curious how you knew you know, how long the line needed to be and what was the cheapest place to put the bottling line versus the bright tanks and all that kind of stuff.
1: <laughs> Well, the, the whole project changed in that regard a couple times. Originally, we were going to build a, a greenfield brewery in a business park in Mountaintop, Pennsylvania. And I had it designed by Steiner, And they had a, a whole outline of the building with the brew house and bottling and the tanks and grain handling and office and a small tasting room and everything. And when it became obvious that we weren't going to raise the full amount of money in the stock offering, that was simply not affordable. And we ended up finding a 50 barrel Huppmann copper brew house built in the 60s, I believe, you know, traditional old copper brewery that came out of a brewery in a town in Franconia, conveniently enough, and was owned by Buffalo Brewing in Buffalo, New York. And they were a brew pub. They bought and imported this Huppmann brew house to create a packaging facility. They didn't make it. They sold the, uh, you know, advertised this brew house for sale and we went and bought it. And the bottling line, there is a small uh, machine works in Germany. Markle, Peter Markle was the guy's name. And he would refurbish bottling lines. So we said, we need 100 bottles a minute, you know, need you to design the whole line. Need a rotary labeler, which was a Cronus. The bottling line is kind of, A funny story. He said, yeah, I have a Cronus filler. So he rebuilt this machine, put a Cronus label on it, and it turns out it was actually a company called Schlip that had built the filler originally, but (laughs) Cronus had bought Schlip at some point. So he said, yeah, well, it's a Cronus because Cronus owns (laughs) Schlip, which is a little funny.
0: Basically the same thing, Um, right? Yeah.
1: Basically the same thing. And it
0: was actually
1: an excellent filler, except for the fact that the crowner would keep crushing bottles, which was a bit of a nightmare. They finally sent one of their uh, mechanics over and he he 90% fixed the problem. But overall, it was was a pretty efficient packaging line. We also had an architect to design. Backing up a second, we ended up purchasing the building in the Pocono Mountains uh, Industrial Park rather than building the... Greenfield Brewery in Mountaintop. So we basically had to adapt the building to accommodate the equipment. We had to dig some four grains and run a a line out to the sewer main, because in my opinion, you cannot run a brewery without four grains. (laughs) Um, We we also had a a local tank fabricator build all of our lager and uh, bright beer tanks. Uh, They were all single wall tanks, and we built a big refrigerated room to put them in. So from having the thing designed initially as a ground up build by a German equipment manufacturer, we ended up kind of having to shoehorn things in a bit here and there. But it was a big building we were in. I think it was, I want to say it was like 20 or 25,000 square feet. So there was plenty of room for, you know, for the whole installation and room to grow. I mean, we already knew where the the next row of tanks was going to go.
0: But you always got a plan for that. That's the hope, yeah. right? Because you definitely don't want to be stuck in a situation where you need it and you don't have space. Because then it's a whole other mess, big mess. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the stock offering. So once you've kind of gotten the the layout design, or at least what you know your proposed idea, you figured out what the equipment was going to cost, then you figured out what the bill was going to be and what you needed to raise. But where do you even start to do a stock offering? <laughs> so do you do you call some attorneys? Like, do it? You know what what's Again, this is how not to start a brewery. It's also teaching people what to do and where to go. So what did you do? Taking a a step
1: further back, the the first thing I would recommend anyone is we – I went to uh, one of the local universities, and they had a small business development center, Mm -hmm. which – I assume still exists. It's something that's uh, under the umbrella of some federal agency, but they put these kind of business incubator type offices in universities to help starting up businesses and growing businesses. I went in there and they gave me like a half hour time slot to, to tell them what I wanted to do. They said, sounds great. You need a business plan. So they handed me a chief of papers on how to write a business plan. And I think that's kind of their weeding out process. You know, how many of these assignments do they give out to prospective entrepreneurs? How many of them actually fill out the business plan and, and come back? And I think the number was pretty low because it was pretty involved. So, you know, I spent a couple of weeks researching everything, costs, you know, obviously had to make some educated guesses about some things. And then the biggest educated guess or uneducated guess is how much beer are you going to sell? month by month, year by year. That's where you kind of have to pick a number that makes the numbers work and uh, and hope you hit it. But anyway, they and, and they also assign you an advisor who you can call pretty much any time uh, about any aspect of the business. And uh, the fellow that they assigned to us was uh, super nice, super helpful, and super knowledgeable. I think he had a trucking business and had sold it for, you know, I don't know how many millions and this was kind of his hobby was to, to be involved in helping startup businesses. So that's my number one piece of advice for anybody wanting to get into any kind of business is look up your local SBDC. And the counties that I was looking at getting involved in, they also have economic development offices, and they're the ones who are the conduit for state money. And the state of Pennsylvania, and I'm sure most states do, have programs to offer grants or low-interest loans to starting and expanding businesses. And you really need to get to know your local economic development office and know the people there because they'll help you if you decide to go for some of that state money.
0: I think those are invaluable. Actually, that wasn't a big thing. When I sold my first company, I was looking for somewhere to volunteer for a while. So for almost a decade, I helped with the board that brought the SBDC to our city. And so we had a little office in downtown, hired the yep. advisors, and it was it was fantastic. We had, there were some great success stories from it. And when I first tried to start my first business when I was 23, Three, yes, I was too young. I was gonna open a, a fitness center. I met with them too, and a guy just completely killed my dreams, which he needed to do. I was completely <laughs> yeah. dreaming, but uh, yeah, and it took me years later to do one, and I finally did. What four, four or five years later, but I had his his expertise and the things that he had told me. It took me that long to to get to first base, essentially, based on that, and then and then it was great.
1: Again, I, I had no idea about even the possibility of doing a stock offering until I read about this mile high stock offering that was wildly successful, and I want to say that was sometime in nineteen ninety four. So the first thing I did was I contacted it was kind of a friend of a friend, a, a local fellow who was both a lawyer and an accountant, and went to him and said, "This is what I'm thinking of doing. You know how." How should I proceed? And he said, Well, it's a little bit outside of my area. I'm not a securities lawyer, but you need to get in touch with a securities law firm. And again, wanting to be, you know, have everything legitimate and above board, he he recommended me to a pretty big legal firm in Philadelphia, you know, who do, at least at the time, I haven't kept up with them at all, but they did a lot of, you know, big time securities work. And the type of offering was called a Regulation A offering. And I believe it was fairly new at the time, and it was intended to be a way for smaller businesses to raise smaller amounts of money selling stock than doing a full-blown stock offering for tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. This Regulation A offering was capped at $5 million, and it was intended to be a simpler, more streamlined way to get a stock offering through the process, through the SEC, and get up and running and selling stock. The reality was, turned out to be that at least the SEC agents that we were dealing with gave us a horrific, a horrifically hard time about getting our offering through the process, and that ended up costing enormously in time and in money, legal fees, accounting fees, uh, you name it. The longer the process is dragged out, the, the lawyer's meter is always running every three months or every quarter of the year that passes throughout this process. Oh yeah, you need a fresh set of audited financial statements because the ones you submitted two months ago are now are now old. So <laughs> it turned out to be an extraordinarily painful and expensive process that I did not anticipate. You know, I saw how how quickly the mile high offering sold out. You know, they raised two and a half million in a, in about a week and thought, man, we'll just go through this pain. Get the stock offering up and running. The money will come pouring in, and then we'll, we'll be building a brewery. And the reality is, it took us two years from when we first started selling stock until we finally closed on the stock offering. And along the way, we had to amend or revise the offering three times. And each time, you have to amend the offering. It's the same process again. You have to go back to the SEC with the uh, new offering that you're proposing, and you know hope that hope that it passes. Smoothly, and unfortunately, it never seemed to.
0: Were they just being overly like sticklers as far as the rules and and dot in your eyes, or that you think they were kind of being just a pain in the ass to be a pain in the ass? Which i not that a government employee would ever do that, but you know what I
1: mean. Well, I think it's kind of both. The the frustrating thing is, you'd send in, you know, I basically cribbed a lot of the boilerplate language out of the mile high offering, which really. Isn't admitting anything because I think every stock offering, I'm sure. uh, yeah. you know, basically crib's the same generic boilerplate. You know, for a lot of it. But the frustrating thing is you'd send in the proposed offering, and a week or two or three later, you get a, a response letter from the SEC, and they don't say this is wrong, this is wrong. They say justify this chart. How does this comply with section, you know, X Y Z of the code? You know please clarify this passage. You know nothing that's, that says, this is what you need to do to fix it. It's just, please explain this, please explain this, please explain this. So then we'd get this response letter, sit down, have to rewrite everything, have to type out explanations for everything that they asked for and send it back in. And then a week or two or three later, you get another response letter with another set of concerns. And I think it might have to do with whose desk it landed on. The person who saw it the first time might not be the person who saw it the second time. And you know they have a fresh set of questions or concerns. It, it just was extraordinarily painful. And the other problem is, since we had to amend the offering several times, is that we'd be up and running and selling stock. And then when we had to amend an offering, you have to cease all activities. You can't sell stock. You can't make any noise about yourself because you're in a quiet period. And that just killed any momentum we would have had selling stock and having our name out there as, hey, this is, you know, this is going to happen.
0: But so just to clarify on when you say you had to amend it, the first initial one that you started with, you you had targeted like 3.3 as your minimum, 5 million as your max. And along the way, as sales started to happen, just correct me if I'm wrong, I I thought you had amended it because you you weren't going to hit that target and you needed to have some other options in there or were there some other reasons you had to change along the way?
1: Well, that was... One of the biggest reasons, and that was one of the lessons from the mile high offering that I didn't learn, was that they had a kind of what I consider kind of an artificially low minimum in their stock offering of something like $400,000. Hmm. That when you read the prospectus, it said, well, if we only sell $400,000, here's the brewery we're going to build. So there were basically two use of proceeds in the offering saying, we're going to build this tiny little thing if we only have $400,000. But if we sell the full two and a half million, we're going to build our big, splashy brewery. And that seemed odd to me. It's like, well, that doesn't really make sense to tell people, well, we want to build this big thing. But if we only raise a tiny amount, we're going to build something small. So I figured that just didn't make sense. I wasn't going to do that. The reality is, is that when you set a minimum of three million shares, there were thousands of people who had our stock offering. And they all kind of had the same reaction when. They talk to us. It's like, well, if, if you're only at a million dollars, I'll just wait before I invest until you hit your minimum, because otherwise, you know, I send they send in their money. It goes into an escrow account and then it sits and waits until we hit the three million sold. It's kind of a self-defeating, mm-hmm. you know, a self-defeating uh, feedback loop. So if if I could have had initially, you know, a story in there that on a smaller amount of money, we will build a smaller brewery then. We can hit that threshold and tell the world hey we're in business we're going to close on the offering on such and such a date if you want to get involved you know now's the time or never and as, as it turns out at the very end when we finally did have enough money to get open we did send such a letter out and we said hey you know we're gonna stock offering ends on september 30 it's now or never and in that last week or two we sold i think a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of of stock so that was all that pent up demand waiting just to hear that, hey, it's really going to happen before people would write the check. So I, I can't, it's human nature. I should have realized initially that setting such a high minimum would basically prevent people from sending their money in right away.
0: Well, you could also make the argument that the company that you hired to help you do this may have wanted to offer some of that insight, maybe, of to- the Help you be successful, but at the end of the day, they were making hourly rate regardless of whether you ever opened. So I guess they didn't care.
1: Well, lawyers will never advise you as to what you should do in a business sense. They, you know, you tell them what you want done, and they say, "Here's how we can do it." But you know, they. Never really said. Well, I think it would be smarter if you did this instead of that. You know, that's that's just the nature of it. And we did ultimately. I mean, ultimately we were successful. We didn't raise the full five million, but we because we had amended the offering that we could close on a smaller amount, and it was enough to get the brewery up and running. And we had two thousand two hundred ninety-six shareholders, and they were very enthusiastic. Uh, we had some events at the brewery, some Oktoberfest events, some shareholder open houses. And, you know, hundreds of people would show up to these. And, you know, it was really gratifying having the participation of, you know, a couple thousand people. And of those 2,300 people, probably 70 percent lived within an hour of the brewery. So it was good to have a a local group of people who were actively interested, uh, which I think is a big advantage over most startup breweries where no one's heard of it and has no reason to be interested.
0: Yeah, you have guaranteed customers there was a brewery that went out of business not far from me, maybe an hour away, hour and a half, and they had done something similar that I don't think on purpose, but ended up having to, you know, raise money. And they had like 116 investors, and the distributors would laugh because when they would say, "Hey, grocery stores doesn't have any volume," Lee would just go out and be like, "Hey, guys, all the investors need to go buy a six pack this weekend," and they would destroy, <laughs> you know, the the area, the three grocery stores nearby, and then sales were great, and then they'd get them back in the next week. So. Artificial demand, but at the same time, it's, uh, it, it helped. So, Well, before we take a break, how much did you wind up raising when right before when you were able to open?
1: In the stock offering, we sold about $2.2 2 million. Uh, dollars, and we also got a half-million-dollar low-interest state loan for machinery. It was called the MELF Fund, the Machinery and Equipment Loan Fund. And we also got a $667,000 SBA loan. And so if you add it all together, it was about 3.4 million in stock and low interest loans, which sounds like a lot.
0: (laughs) Well, that's what we're gonna say. So that was in 1997, the kind of late fall, and uh, we're gonna take a quick break and we're gonna see how you spent your over $3 million. We'll be right back. All right. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why sell for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets. Underscore underscore Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. Okay, so third segment. Time again, the nuts and bolts. You get to the point. You've got money, different sources. Now, this is a situation I think that almost every brewery owner I've talked to, at least in some way, shape, or form, experienced. The idea of what I want to build versus the reality of what I can build, and then trying to figure out, you know, how important that gap was. So, you know, in your situation, looking back, you you went from hoping that investors would fund the whole thing to, you got the, the the loan from the state, you got the SBA loan, or is it a grant from the state? Did you get to pay that back?
1: Yeah, it was, no, it was a loan. Okay, right. It so was, that, it, it, I think it was, I think it was interest only for the first year and it was a very low interest rate. And then, you know, we, we would have had to start paying principal back after the year.
0: Yeah. So my situation was different in the sense that, I bought everything and realized I didn't buy enough, and I had to go buy more shit. I didn't put more money in. Same concept, just different way to get there. But did you have to then go back and rework your business plan with this new debt service in it, with maybe less capacity out or whatever, renting instead of buying? Yeah. Had to do, you know.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, what it boils down to is we we never truly had enough money, and when when you're kind of in desperation mode, which it seems like we were for for a couple of years. You kind of don't have the ability to pick your head up and and see the bigger picture. You just have to do what you have to do to get to get through the next step of the process. You mentioned before the break about how that money was spent. Well, as just a for instance, the lawyers, when I very first met with them, said probably be about fifty thousand dollars in legal fees to get this reggae offering up and running because this reggae offering, you know, the regulation a offering. Mm -hmm. Is a simple streamlined process. Shouldn't be too much friction from the SEC. Probably be about fifty thousand. Well, in the end, I think their bills were about six times that. Hmm. You know, it was between two hundred fifty and three hundred thousand dollars in legal fees. Um, the accountants, and again, because we wanted everything to be absolutely above board, we used Price Waterhouse. You know, one of the big six or big seven at the time, and. As I mentioned before, that we'd go through three months of this process and the SEC would say, Well, you need fresh audited financials. Well, a set of audited financials from Price Waterhouse is like twelve or fifteen thousand dollars. Hmm. So to print the actual stock offering, you can't just go to your local print shop. You have to go to a bonded legal printer, you know, because if there's any mistakes done in the printing process of an sec document it's a pretty serious thing so you know and and they weren't cheap and we printed thousands and thousands of these things just the postage alone to send this stuff out then all these events that we did to sell stock to people to to try to uh, sell stock you know we'd call up a a local bar and say hey we want to do an event tuesday night we'll buy hors d'oeuvres you know people will come in you know just the expenses were tremendous so the reality is the 3.3 million was greatly reduced by just all of these offering expenses before we even got to the point of trying to build and run a brewery. And as I said before, it took two years, this process took two years, and it, it, was, it was extremely difficult. And by the time we got done, got the doors open, we had a huge list of accounts payable, payroll to meet, we had loans that we had to start servicing, and you know we we were pretty much underwater from the day we opened. And you know it's it's I really wish we had raised the full amount because I think you know another million dollars we could have stuck around and and had the ability to do some more long term planning, more you know different beers uh, true packages. Uh, I don't think we ever actually had a six pack carrier, so we were only selling beer in the cases. We, we we ran out of money.
0: <laughs> so when did you finally get open? So it was like September 97 when the, the full offering closed and then you had the equipment come in, had to renovate the building. Was it sometime uh, late, 1998?
1: Yeah, we, we, we were in business basically for about eight months in 1998. The bankruptcy was filed February of '99. You know, we we had some great times. I mean, we we did a huge Oktoberfest in in the fall of '98, and you know, like something like I don't know, probably over a thousand people showed up. You know, we put like thirty thousand dollars in the bank just from, you know, one day of Oktoberfest. You know, that's that's the kind of thing that I think shows that the idea had merit. That our shareholders had fun being part of it, had fun coming to our events. We we also did two trips to Germany. You know, for the first 40 shareholders who signed up uh, and we went over and, you know, toured. one time we went to Oktoberfest, got a visit to Kiesmann Brewery in Bamberg and got a tour of the brewery there. And that's, that's one thing I'm a bit disappointed in is that the shareholders had so much fun with this that I wish more people would have would have realized how much fun it would have been to, to have been part of it.
0: So what was that like in the beginning when you first started brewing beer in this new you know, $3 million brewery that you built? Was it really excited? <laughs> were you more nervous? Were you still just kind of like overwhelmed by the whole thing?
1: Yeah, I, I still was kind of shell-shocked at that point. But, you know, we when we finally turned that corner and, and got the stock offering closed and behind us, it, it got real exciting again. You know, there was there was a lot of work to get the equipment all installed and up and running. Uh, you know, we had to import malt from Germany and hops and, you know, get all the tanks stood up and the
0: refrigeration up and running. And it was exciting. It was fun. Did, uh, did you have any like quality control issues trying to dial in that recipe with the new system or was it kind of seamless?
1: Uh, if, if there were, I don't remember them. I mean, I'm sure there were. I, I do remember we had an issue with a couple brews with runoffs that lasted a couple hours longer <laughs> than they should have. But, you know, once we got the mill dialed in and, and the process dialed in, it was fun to be brewing beer again. I had not been making beer for two or three years at that point. So oh, yeah. it's like now we fi- now we finally get to do what we want to do. I mean, I, I became half of a securities lawyer in those two years <laughs> and, a, and a stock salesman. And, you know, I, I want to know more of that. I wanted to make beer.
0: Yeah. Well, so what was the distribution plan? I, I would assume you mentioned that brewpubs weren't really a thing. Did, did you sell a lot on site? Was the whole goal to pretty much go distro straight out? And did you self-distro or sell those rights or what would you do? Well,
1: initially, the plan was pretty much all distribution other than things like these Oktoberfests and shareholders' open houses that we would do. I remember one shareholders' open house, uh, we said, all right, we're going to sell you beer for you know, shareholders only one day only five dollars a six pack. And I think we had about a pallet or a pallet and a half of each of the four beers. I figured that's plenty. (laughs) And people came and bought out every six pack of beer within like an hour or two. You know, we probably could have sold three times as much to our shareholders on that day. But you know, other than things like that, the initial plan was distribution. And we signed with the local course distributor. At the time in Northeast Pennsylvania, Coors Light was the number one beer by far. Uh, so they had a lot of trucks out. This this one fellow who did a lot of stuff for us, uh, including, you know, selling the stock, knew, was good friends with some of the people at the Coors Distributorship. So they, they really got excited and got behind the brand and did a good job getting the beer out in the market. And of course, back then, you know, distributors didn't have 50 different craft beers that they were trying to juggle. So obviously we didn't get the share of mind that Coors got for them, but we probably got better effort for our beer than, than most people do with their distributors.
0: Did you end up expanding to other distributors before you closed or just with that one versus initially? Well, that one
1: initially, and then we also had one down in the Allentown, Easton Bethlehem, Allentown, Lehigh Valley Market which also was uh, the Coors Coors distributor locally. I will say, though, that, you know, I I did learn one lesson because kind of near the end when we knew things weren't going well, our our two distributors in Pennsylvania said, well, look, you know, we know the Coors guys in New Jersey. You know, why don't you have them come out and talk to them about distributing in your market, in, in their markets, and so a couple of people came out. I want to say it was like three distributors covered all of New Jersey for Coors, and gave a tour of the brewery, fed them lunch, gave them beer, and they said, "All right, what what are you going to do for us?" And I said, "What do you mean?" And they said, "Well, Sam Adams in our market spends, and I forget the number, but of something like five dollars a barrel on advertising. You know, what what are you going to offer us in, in terms of that?" And that's kind of when I knew we were doomed. <laughs> this. You know we we didn't have money to spend in three new markets in new jersey you know of what they were looking for and did you ever run into anything like that when you were talking to distributors
0: everybody does in some some sense or another so there's always the and some of the distributors won't tell you initially they're sort of like you know hey we need the brand that's cool we're gonna we're we're gonna be behind it but there always comes a point and the first one if they don't tell you anything else is always going to be in-store samplings it's it's grocery samplings is especially if you're a distributed brewery you hear it all the time because if you're not doing it the other suppliers are and unfortunately you just get your ass kicked so it it, it sucks but yeah. you have to do it so our
1: two distributors
0: in pennsylvania
1: we kind of had ins to both of them the the one down in the lehigh valley uh where, where are we're friends or business associates with one of our big investors down there and like i said our local market we had an in with some of the folks there so maybe they were a little more accommodating to us plus we were local mm-hmm. whereas the the guys from new jersey it's like well you know brewery's 100 miles away 150 miles away you know why am i going to take this if they're not going to they're not going to spend money in my market
0: well and in so, their defense it doesn't t- tend to sell if you don't and you know, we experienced that with yeah. like seven states yeah. and honestly it was a struggle to get organic growth in florida because all i could really do is social media stuff like you know, flew out there once, but I can't I can't just run in and uh, buy a pint at the bar for people. It's not realistic. So yeah. you have to have some yeah. sort of marketing plan to go seven states away. I get that. But So what was that kind of year like? Um What were some wins? You, you were open. Obviously, you mentioned the Oktoberfest. That was a big win. Uh, were there some beers that you tasted that you're just hyper proud of, some small batch stuff you made that was cool or... Even financials stuff, well, we, <laughs> did you have good months?
1: We, well, we, we pretty much just had uh, the four brands. Mm-hmm. Actually, prior to those four brands coming out, because they were lager beers, brewed the German way, which meant that, you know, it's two months from when you brew it till it's ready. Uh, we did brew a, a Dusseldorf-style alt beer, uh, which was draft only, and, and just one batch of that. That was just kind of to have some beer to sell while our lagers were, were aging, but no we we never branched out from that. You know, I had wanted eventually to do more different styles of beer, but we only ever had the the four beers out in the market. But I was I was proud of all of them. We did not have quality issues. Uh we did have a sterile filter going into the filler and we you know steamed the hell out of the filler to to sanitize everything. And I have one one friend who was a particularly rabid fan of ours. And over the years, he kept saying, oh, I've still got a couple bottles in my basement. And he probably still does at this point. You know, he, he would report that even after years, you know, the beer obviously was oxidized, but it never never went sour. So, you know, I think we were pretty tight on our quality control.
0: You said you were open eight months. During that time, financially, was there just sort of like money in the bank and you continue to no. – <laughs> <laughs> well. Maybe six dollars, whatever. <laughs> but, but was it was it each month you were negative? Basically, and it just continued to grow. Were you seeing sales numbers come up, but they just weren't going to hit that target? Like, I assume that you closed after it, eight it months was after thinking about it beforehand, but hoping it wouldn't happen. So, what were some of the yeah. targets?
1: The break even and what we were actually selling was there was a huge gap. Um, we needed on paper to sell about six hundred barrels a month to break even. If we had sold four hundred a month for a while, we could have, you know, scraped and scrounged and and stayed in business. But I think our best month, we sold 250 barrels. And, you know, it it kind of started off 100, 150, 200, 250. Maybe it was only 225. And then it just kind of started dropping off again. And I think by the time we closed, we were selling about 150 barrels a month. So, you know, a 50-barrel brew house with hundred. Bottle a minute bottling line is not a cheap operation to run trust me to any shareholders out there i absolutely love and appreciate the fact that you were involved and i'm not blaming shareholders at all but i'm surprised that with our large number of shareholders that we didn't kind of hit the ground running faster than we than we did um, i'm not quite sure why that is um, shareholders were very enthusiastic coming to to the place and again, I know this sounds awful, like I'm blaming them because I absolutely am not blaming them. I, I'm just don't quite know why that end of it didn't work better than it did.
0: Yeah. I don't know if that sounds like it's blaming them so much as just like, you know, on your balance sheet and your, your asset list. You're like, hey, this was our plan. Our plan was to have investors. And when, when the beer hit the market, they were going to be part of the driving force to take it off. I mean, I will you know, say that 250 barrels your first year in a month is, is no bullshit. That's a that's a decent output, but obviously it didn't do that repeatedly. But from the peak, did you notice this this is one thing it's sometimes you're in the brewery making beer and it's hard to kind of see what's outside the brewery, the brewery outside of what your distributor tells you, but when you hit a peak and then come down, there's typically a reason. Either it went into accounts that didn't rebuy, or you know, it's it's sitting on the shelf and the turns weren't quickly enough to, to get cases back in or your distributor completely raped the situation and it's all their fault. So I don't know, what, what do you got?
1: Well, one thing I didn't kind of cover, we didn't cover yet, is that when we started this thing up in 94 and 95, the market was booming. Craft beer was growing 40, 50% a year. It did not seem like we were saturated with breweries. But by the time we finally got in business in 98, you know, the storm clouds were, were gathering overhead for the craft beer market. And it was the first time of, of many by now that the world was saying, well, there's too many beers on the shelf. There's too many breweries out there competing for what at the time was probably only, I think craft beer back then was around 3% of the market. And, and there was a bit of a fallout or a shakeout in the industry in those days. So, you know, we kind of opened opened up into those headwinds. So I, I don't – I can't blame the distributor. you know I, I can't blame the quality of the product. I just think we, we opened in difficult times under difficult circumstances.
0: Yeah, I well, know part of your offering information you had put in 95, I believe, what the top 50 breweries are. And because I have not enough time on my hands, I only did the top 30 – but I went and looked through <laughs> the top 30 on that list, and of those 30 that were the top biggest breweries in the United States in 1995, only 11 are currently still mostly independent. The rest have either closed down or they're part of a conglomerate that's sold out. So yeah. that says a lot about the longevity that, you know, to, to make it, they either had to partner up with somebody or probably just a super rich family in a couple of those situations. Or when they talk about the owner being the the guy there still at the top, it's probably the city has enough money from something else that he just stays his name on there, but those aren't great yeah. odds, you know? You know,
1: it, it was, it was a real go-go period in the, in the heyday in the early nineties. And uh, it, it was exciting. I mean, it was, and it was also a time when any new brewery opening anywhere in the country was made news. You know, you could have, realistically have at least heard of every brewery there was out there right in yeah. 1994 and obviously that's no longer the case
0: yeah i was surprised um, how many names on your list that i didn't even recognize but i thought that was interesting i'm
1: looking at the list here this was top 50 in 95 and there's Pete's at number two nice. uh, that one's heart, good. heart brewing was like number six but but even something like heart brewing sold 123 thousand barrels in 95 you know where are they now
0: they um, uh, they turned into pyramid. So then, like they basically sold out, turned into pyramid. Pyramid grew into whatever conglomerate they're in. So the you know the heart as you knew it back then does not exist anymore. Yeah, Anchor's dead, full sales conglomerate, Widmer. You know what I mean? There's all those guys on there.
1: Well, here's here's Norwester on the list at about number twelve. And again, that's the original brewery of this group that I modeled my stock offering after. in '95, they sold thirty-two thousand nine hundred barrels. So that's nothing to sneeze
0: at. Yeah, in 2023, they sold zero. Yeah, I found that pretty interesting, just that, you know, the change, and, and that's one of a million projects that are on my list that I probably won't make the time for, is to, to really look at what the average lifespan of a craft brewery in the United States was in the 90s, 2000s. There's no way I'd do it in the 2020s, because there's too damn many of them, but it's, I think it's not as long as we think, you know, it's just... Again, it sucks to close down, but I don't think you were or you clearly were not alone in that situation. So,
1: Well, it's 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 incredibly, incredibly hard to make money in business. You know, any any business, you know, I've been involved with some other breweries that that uh, startups and also uh, old wine breweries. And it's, you know, what what goes on behind the doors of, of the brewery and what the public thinks is happening with the brewery can be two very different things. That's kind of one of your your themes, is that you, you don't know what's going on. You don't see their books.
0: Yeah, everybody seems to uh, equate popularity with profitability. It just isn't the case. You, no. you can be a well-known business of any kind and not make a damn dollar, and most of us do <laughs> or don't. Well, so let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to hear – kind of how you rolled it up and then like i said you had done some things since then or are still doing things so let's talk about what you're doing now and also those great things so let's take a quick break but now uh, we'll come right back and do that all right for the late 90s when you wanted to know what year napoleon invaded russia you'd have to either a pay attention in class b know somebody who knew or c Look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew, and AccuBrew is a real-time web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off, you'll get a notification immediately. Go to accubrew.io, enter Dan Burry at checkout for 10% off your sensor. Follow them on socials at Accubrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and least of all, I will thank you. Okay, so I really want to hear about the not only, I mean we talked about the opening and, and how you chose to close, but sort of the emotions around it. And let me kind of explain it from my perspective that I did this for almost 10 years, and the last three. I hated my beer. I was mad at it. And then it was like this fight. It almost tore my marriage apart. I, when I finally left, I was mad at the industry. I was mad at beer. I, I barely even drank beer for like eight months. And I'm curious, <clears> your <throat> perspective, because you only had seven months of being open, if you almost never got to experience that and you almost had this like, or eight months of being open, you almost just like lost it. And it, just, it was hard. I would think it would be almost harder, I guess, in, in my from my perspective.
1: Well... By the time we finally got open, I think I had been doing this project for about almost three and a half years, and there was a lot of pain and heartache (laughs) throughout that whole time. And you you mentioned uh, your marriage. I I absolutely need to acknowledge my whole family and particularly my wife for being extraordinarily uh, patient and uh, supportive of me throughout this whole process. And as I said, when we opened and we had some initial fantastic events, uh, you know, everybody's spirits were raised briefly. But then when I saw that the numbers weren't hitting where remotely hitting where we needed them to be to keep the keep the place open, you know, I, I kind of slipped back into that funk of feeling trapped, feeling doomed. Uh, You know, as our accounts payable continued to increase and, you know, our revenue obviously not increasing, it it just became inevitable that that we could not keep the doors open. And the day I met with the bankruptcy lawyer really felt like an enormous weight was lifted from me that that had been building for four years. And I, I don't know if this is something people haven't been through it realized but it's it's an extraordinarily personal thing i mean you you take it very very personally hard when your dream collapses and you know you have to file for bankruptcy i i know that some of our employees weren't real thrilled with how the thing ends ended which is understandable but i i don't know if if even they realize just how deeply this this kind of thing can hurt and uh, like you i I was actually out of brewing for several years after after the whole thing collapsed um I just couldn't face it like like you said it I wasn't really angry i just was it was just like a hole had been ripped out of me that that you know i I gave it a shot, which I don't regret doing, but it was it was hard
0: yeah, it hurt well, and you had a a bigger project than a lot of breweries do, but almost everyone who closes has got you know, someone that took a chance on them, whether it's friends and family or uh, some sort of not necessarily institutional, but rich friend or something that rich investor they found somewhere else. So there's also that of like, you know, for me, it was just my wife, which sounds like, oh, okay, one person, but she was also the most important person. So it was like, I yeah. completely think I fucked my wife and my kids over. And to this day, my kids are like, man, I forgot. I forgot how much like how broke we were back then. Like this, you know, the stuff we can do now yeah. versus the stuff we could do then. And so, you know, they obviously saw it too. And that, that, hurts. But, you know, you had all those investors and talking to me, you've been very vocal. I'm sure you have to them as well about feeling bad about it.
1: Well, I, I felt a huge sense of responsibility to everybody who was involved, uh, shareholders and employees and uh, family and
0: friends. And, you know, it it, it only added to the, to the weight. Yeah. Well, I guess one question I did have for you is, did you consider selling at some point? Was there that option to you know, maybe some other brewery that needed a location pre-built or was it just? We, not- we,
1: well, we we did a lot of reaching out. There was one of our employees in particular who wrote letters to every rich person he could think of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of a, a Hail Mary of all Hail Marys. Uh, we, we talked to some people who were predatory lenders. I don't know if, if you ever talked to some of these people, but you know for 500 you pay them $500 for them to drive out to see you and then they're going to lend you you know 40% of the appraised value of your property and they're going to charge you 25% interest on that money and if you don't pay it back in full in 12 months they foreclose on you you know that kind of stuff yeah you know this this really was kind of the depths of the first shakeout in the industry and we did make some inquiries to breweries but there really was was no You know, it was no interest in that point. And the equipment auction was really at the at the bottom of the industry market. I I went to the auction along with some friends and, uh, you know, like under 10 people showed up and the auctioneer at the appointed time. said, well, we're going to wait half an hour and see if anybody else shows up to this auction. And of course, nobody else did. And the stuff basically sold. Everything sold for much scrap value the person who bought the brew house it was the the mill all the way through the uh the whirlpool tank uh actually moved it out to milwaukee and resurrected it and uh has continued brewing with it to this day although i think they've since replaced some of the brew house equipment but you know there was no interest the tanks went i think to a scrap guy really you know the 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 price that that the fellow in Milwaukee paid for the whole Drew house was under scrap value for copper. I mean copper was had some had some value to it and I forget the number that he paid, but it was like a low five figures, which you know, after we had put you know a couple couple hundred thousand dollars into it to see it sell for, you know, five or ten percent of what we put into it was was shocking.
0: Yeah, you damn near paid that just to get it to the States and then probably get it set up and organized and rigged in. Like, yeah, it's crazy. Well, So how did you decide to ultimately close? And there's no right answer. I think every brewery does it differently. Did Did you have like a going away party? Thankfully, you didn't have social media back then. So you didn't have to worry about that. But uh, did you just sneak off one night and stop making beer? Well,
1: kind of a combination of those. We, we did have a going away thing for just a very small group of insiders. You know some of which were shareholders some of which were friends and family and other associates in the industry but by and large right up until we we closed we didn't let any word leak out because as i'm sure you know with if word gets out that you're about to close or you're struggling you know that's death in the marketplace yeah so we closed i sent out uh, against my lawyers very strong objections i sent out a letter to all the shareholders saying that, uh, you know, unfortunately, we've filed bankruptcy today. I think I sent you a copy of it. Yeah, I think you did, yeah. And, uh, you know, I I explained the reasons. I explained the amount of debt that we had. I said down to the penny how much compensation I drew from the company throughout its four years of existence. You know, I I did not want to leave people wondering what happened. Mm -hmm. And like I said, my lawyers absolutely did not want me to do that. And the response that that letter got was actually quite gratifying. I got a couple dozen people who wrote offering condolences and saying that they are happy that they had been involved and are sad that it's closed, and that you know this dream of ours is over uh I got one kind of hate letter back, but you know I'm actually surprised I didn't get more more of that kind of thing.
0: yeah, I think it's that's cool, and also kind of maybe speaks to just you know, what the concept was and the legacy of what that, that brewery was, that people understood that it was it was fun and the ones who got to be involved in it enjoyed it, but I guess but are but,
1: no, but no, I wasn't answering the phone.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah,
1: I would imagine. Um, and, and I would still be at the brewery and, you know, cars would drive up and people would peer in the window and we'd just kind of, you know, I'd just kind of hide in the office because it, it was going to be very hard to face hundreds or a couple thousand people wanting answers.
0: Yeah. Um, when it probably took what, months to get everything out of there and completely liquidated, didn't it?
1: Yeah. the Well, the, the bankruptcy took a few months. The bankruptcy hearing was interesting. There was only, you know, I didn't know whether a crowd of people were going to show up and, you know, voice their displeasure because, you know, it's a, it's a public spectacle. Mm-hmm. And really only like one vendor showed up who we owed money to. He basically asked the judge, well, I I made all this material for them that I can reuse. Can I reuse it? The judge said, absolutely. And the guy said, "Okay." he got up and he walked out. So it turned out to be a pretty painless bankruptcy hearing. You know, obviously, lawyers from the bank with the SBA and so forth and people from the state were there. But, uh, you know, nobody being contentious or disagreeable about the process. It's just like, okay, let's get this done. And, you know, it's something I had obviously never been through and hope not to again. But it was, you know, pretty interesting and and painless process.
0: Probably helps having all the attorneys uh, pour over all the documents early. So because you set it up, right, that makes a difference in the back end for sure. But so you had mentioned earlier that there were two big catastrophic mistakes you had made and we didn't get to the second ones. Looking back, what were the turning points of of the other mistake that you made?
1: I think we we touched on both both of them related to how people who looked at the stock offering made a decision whether or not to invest. And the the biggest one, I think, was that whole thing in there that I had to say I'm a part time employee mm-hmm. and I have other business interests that will take some of my time. You mm-hmm. really have to put things in the most negative light in a stock offering. Prospectus, you know, that's, that's just the way it is. And I think that turned a lot of people off. When we first went live with our stock offering, we got a lot of noise in the press, both in Northeast Pennsylvania and down in the Lehigh Valley. And we hired a 800 telephone answering service. The first week we got over a thousand calls from people who wanted to get the prospectus. So we're mailing these things out, you know, a couple hundred of these a day for a few weeks. And then no money was coming back. You know, I figured, well, hey, here it is. We're going to have our mile high moment and send out a couple thousand of these and a few thousand are going to come back and we're in business. The big mistakes. Well, that was the first one. I mean, if if you read the risk factors and it says, you know, the principals of this company are not full time with this company, that I think was the single biggest turnoff that we didn't convert more of this interest into into shareholders. And then the other one was the whole thing about the minimum being too high that people think, well, there's plenty of time. If, if you know, and, and we had to be public. If someone asked, how much stock have you sold? We had to tell them because it's be pretty as long well as if we didn't or we lied about it. You know, oh, you've sold half a million dollars and you're going for three million. Well, I'll just wait and see you get your three million and then I'll invest. And, and we did rectify both of those somewhat in the subsequent offerings. But you really have one shot out of the gate. That's when you get all the newspaper articles written, and I was on the radio in both markets talking it up. When you're new and you make a big splash, that's the time to strike. You know, strike while the iron is hot. And after months and then being down for a couple months and rewriting the offering and then telling people, hey, you know, are you still interested? We have a new offering for you to look at. It just didn't happen. Yeah. Although I think I did send you spreadsheets of the amount of money that was coming in day by day and week by week. Mm Mm-hmm which is kind of fun to look at because there are days like here's when we received $36,000 in the mail on uh, February 4th of 96. I mean, that sounds awful impressive. And there are weeks where we did 48000 84000 $92,000 in a week, which sounds incredibly impressive. And under any circumstance, that is incredibly impressive. Unfortunately, it was an order of magnitude below what we needed to be doing. And in the first edition of the offering, we sold $916,000 worth of stock, where we took it down and rewrote it. And that was part of our thinking of getting involved with the stockbrokers. It's like, well, heck, we're just brewers, and we sold almost a million dollars worth of stock. If we get stockbrokers involved who are professionals at selling stock, how, how can we not do better than that well so it's,
0: it sounds like one of the big things that you blame for what had happened was just the lack of money and then not having the runway to be able to hit your production targets and your sales targets well, obviously we're playing a game of guess but let's say you've got the five million. Talk to me about like how you imagine that would have gone differently. Would you have invested in something different to grow the top line revenue or expand distribution markets? Like how how would the, the trajectory of Franconia's first three years be different?
1: Well, first of all, we, if, assuming that happened reasonably quickly on the first iteration of the offering, we would have had significantly lower costs for everything that we ended up doing. You know, when we opened the doors, our accounts payable was like $150,000 to any number of vendors. Including like that, the law firm that I mentioned, and the financial printer, and Price Waterhouse. Actually, I don't think Price Waterhouse let us uh, run up a bill.
0: They've <laughs> anyway. this before. We're not doing that shit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I, I think I think legally, you know, they're not going to going to sign off on your financials if you don't pay their bill. It's that True. simple. Yeah. So if we'd gotten open with significant amount of money in the bank, I think we could have. First of all, just survived the lean months with some money in the bank. And again, I can't blame it entirely on the state of the market, but, you know, the state of the market wasn't good for craft beer in the late 90s but we didn't have a chance to figure out how to overcome that or to outlast it simply because we had no money in the bank. It's it's kind of hard to imagine at this point how we could have done things differently because we did put a lot of attention and work into presenting an image of being being legit, you know, of being this great brewery with a new idea at the time which was to make these authentic german beers here in the united states with more money obviously we we could have gotten that message out to a much broader audience than we did as far as having more money in terms of the plant and equipment i actually think we ended up doing a very efficient job of building the brewery for instance we for a while we were are using a mechanical contractor to do a lot of the a lot of the fabrication and uh, welding work and so forth and then we ended up hiring One of the guys who was doing the work and put him on our payroll, you know, that was a much, much more efficient and cost effective way to to build the place out. I have to take my hat off to one of the other fellows involved who was the, you know, the chief engineer slash head of maintenance for getting the place open without just having to paper everything over with tons of money. And it was a good, efficient, high quality Brewing operation. I, I think it's just if we had the had the extra money, it's it's just a combination, like I said, of being able to survive and being able to get our message out into the market. But it's kinda of hard to think in those terms because it was such a desperate struggle every step of the way that you know, kinda of, it's kind of like almost like a fantasy to think, well, if it really had happened the way we expected it to happen, I'd like to think that we could have made a success of it.
0: Well, like I said, I I thought there were some merits to the model and definitely some things that I think would even be good ideas to emulate today. So I don't think it was obvious what the end result was going to be by any stretch of the imagination. Well, talk to me a little bit about what happened after. Since then, you're still brewing. You've, you've brewed a few more places. Well, I was out of, out of brewing for a couple of years. I just
1: did a variety of kind of entrepreneurial things that went surprisingly better than you would think. Then I, I finally got the itch to get back into, into brewing because, you know, I was, was scraping and scrounging to, to make a living doing things that I didn't really enjoy, although some of them were kind of fun. And actually briefly worked in Milwaukee at the brewery that bought my brew house. Oh, really? But for a number of reasons, that wasn't going to work out as a long-term thing. Primarily, the idea of moving my family out there just wasn't going to happen. From there, I decided to yet again open a a brewery. And this was pretty much the exact opposite of Franconia. It was a kind of a handmade two-barrel brew house, sales over my bar only even um, down to the name and, we to
0: make sure we knew it was different. Right.
1: Yeah. One, one guy brewing. And there's some hard lessons there that I also learned that I don't want to get into here, but uh, I'll tell you offline if you want. <laughs> and then when for various reasons, I was no longer part of that operation, a uh, big new splashy brewery was being built pretty much right in my backyard called Susquehanna brewing. And as uh, they had a fully automated, brew Brewhouse, and you know, when I heard about this, I I basically wrote them a letter and said, "Hey, I don't know what your timeline is or your employment situation, but it would absolutely kill me not to be part of this thing." So mm-hmm. they ended up hiring me, and I was there for about four years. Then, when I was ready to leave there, a job opening became available at Gordon Biersch in Syracuse, New York. My wife and I, because our kids were you know grown and gone at this point, uh, we moved up here about six years ago, seven years ago. And Gordon Bierce was fun because, again, I was back to being a one-person operation, which I love. (laughs) And I'd see my boss uh, once a year. He'd come and do an audit of the place. And, uh, you know, I could get lunch from the kitchen every day and make beer and set my own hours. And it was fantastic. And unfortunately, Gordon Bierce has had their troubles and my location closed down. And again, fortunately enough, there was a new brewery opening up not too far from here where I continue to work. by going to make beer every day.
0: Yeah, so that's Myers Creek Brewing Company. You I guess you have a Pilsner on tap there too, right? Yep. How, is it I, similar? I like to th-
1: <laughs> no, I wouldn't say that. But I like to think that, that my influence there is responsible for making a number of lagers because... We do a lot of the the hazy IPAs and fruited sours and so forth, which aren't personally my favorite styles of beer. You know, I am always lobbying to do more lagers. And uh, right now we have a pilsner, We have an Amber Lager on. Uh, We have a Keller beer that's been kegged and is just waiting for an open tap. Of course, our Oktoberfest beer is on right now also. So, you know, it's fun brewing again, and it's fun uh, brewing lagers particularly.
0: I appreciate you keeping that going. I prefer lagers overall. Maybe we're the minority, but I I definitely enjoy that.
1: Yeah, I hear you.
0: Before we wrap up, and we've talked a lot around it, and obviously you've said a lot of things, but what do you want the legacy of Franconia to be? When people remember what it was, what it stands for— God forbid, what it might be again in the future. What, what do you want that legacy to be?
1: <laughs> well, no, it's it's 100% certain it's not going to happen again in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the biggest part of the legacy in my mind is I, I have a deep appreciation for every one of the 2,300 shareholders who invested in this. Yes, it didn't last very long. And yes, we kind of just vanished without a trace and under a pile of debt. But the fact that so many people were involved in what started off as the dream of myself and only one or two other people is just incredibly, incredibly gratifying. Part of my reason for wanting to talk about this is just to say to everyone who was involved that I couldn't be more proud and appreciative that they were part of this. And I've never really had a chance to say that. What people today think of Franconia, what legacy they remember i hope is a good one i'm really not in touch with very many people at all from those days and one fellow who i am still involved with thought i was absolutely crazy for coming on and talking to you about this um he said why do you want to do that just let sleeping dogs lie and i said because it's a i think it's an interesting story and because we never had a chance to tell people kind of you know pull back the curtain and, and give them a sense of how things went and and i think that's a legitimate reason for for telling the story today and as i said to anybody listening who was involved i i can't thank you enough i'm i'm humbled and and proud that so many people wanted to be involved in this, in this venture.
0: I think it's a fantastic story. So you can tell your buddy that I'm very picky and I always say I don't interview assholes who make shitty beer and ugly packaging. And as soon as these (laughs) stories stop being interesting to me, I'm going to stop doing the podcast because if I'm not learning, then I'm not teaching and it's just not fun. And what we talked about today, you know, you and I talked a little bit over the past few weeks about, you know, not sure if it was necessarily relevant to the industry today. And I think it absolutely is because it's part of our history that I think most people don't know and you know like like we talked earlier to scale the numbers for CPI today and it's what 12 million dollars that we're talking about somewhere around 10 12 million dollars or to be raising which sounds like a lot and, and even today I, I think they would struggle just as much so it's it's a lesson that's relevant it's a story that's interesting and I absolutely I'm super happy that you took the time to share it today.
1: Thank you for having me. And again, just thanks to my friends, family, particularly my family and all the shareholders. We had a blast for a few months. I wish it could have been longer.
0: I'm just happy to know you're still making beer too. I think that that means you've kind of ended on a high note. And again, unlike me, you weren't as mad at beer as I was, or at least you got over it. So I think it was a great episode. and, And again, I really appreciate you sharing it. Well, thank you so much. Are you still paying shipping for your brewery's ingredients? That's really, really dumb, considering that Brewery Direct offers free shipping on every single order. But maybe that'll work out for you. I mean, Donald Trump got elected president, Paula Abdul and Justin Bieber both had singing careers, Shaq managed to play ball real good, and Paris Hilton ended up not losing all of her family's money. But if you don't want to risk it, I'd call Brewery Direct. They've got a diverse selection of malted and unmalted grains, aseptic fruit purees, yeast, and even hops. And if you brew with adjuncts, They'd get you covered on that front too. What they don't do is charge you to ship it because they don't suck. Now serving twelve states and even Canada, your brewery needs Brewery Direct. So go check them out online at brewerydirect.com or at brewery direct at whatever social media whose algorithm you let control your habits. Well, thanks a fuckload for sticking around guys. What well, my guests and I do here wouldn't be possible without your curiosity and balancing the toxic positivity in the craft beer industry with a hefty dose of reality could not be more important. If you're thinking about starting a brewery, I honestly wish you the best of luck. If you've already got one and you're trying to decide if you should keep it, I wish you the best of love. Maybe you shuttered or sold your beer business and you're well into the next positive and hopeful stage of your life. In that case, I'll buy you a beer seven. I'm always on the hunt for great stories of other breweries that have felt the sting of struggle. I'm always open to answering questions and helping in any way that I possibly can. So feel free to reach out. Email is easiest at freeplaykelly. Oh, and if you're inclined to support the show, there are a few ways you can go about that. None better than sharing your favorite episode with your favorite friend. Followed very closely by buying a copy of my 2020 book, How Not, to start a Danbury. And last but never least, you can support the businesses that have supported the show. I truly hope this show has made you think, made you feel, and made you better at your career. And of course, I hope it's taught you a little something about how not to start a Danbury. Free play.
1: Media.